so I was thinking about this question, what does it mean to be all in, right? And I would, I'll celebrate, he's not in here, I think he's leaving, but Jackson Anderson yesterday, we had uh, the Nazarene Community Resource Center had their, their 5K yesterday, and Jackson was the youngest finisher who did not stop running. And so if you see Jackson, congratulate him wherever he is. Um, so you can tell him we thought he did great yesterday. Um, he did tell all of us that he was going to beat, like he went to every like, grown man and was like, you've got to beat me today. Um, he, de- he beat some of those grown men. So, but what does it mean to be all in on something? What does it mean for us to live in such a way that we would reorient our entire life around something? If we were to talk about elite athletes, we would talk about elite athletes in this way. They have reoriented their lives around the idea that I want to be an elite athlete. Their diet has changed. Their exercise pattern has changed. What they do changes throughout the day. But we also know that there are people who say they want to be elite in whatever it is, but they don't reorient their lives. They keep kind of, they're like half in. They're not really all in on the idea of doing this. They're just kind of half in. And so we're not shocked when they're not great. It's like the least shocking thing ever when someone says, I want to be a great athlete. And they're like, but I don't watch what I eat. And um, I don't sleep much. And um, I don't really practice every day. Like that's like the least shocking thing ever. And so maybe that analogy is not helpful for you, but maybe, maybe this one might be. So um, I was thinking about how, how do you ever wrestle with how much is enough? Right? What does it mean like, to live with contentment or, or satisfaction or to be content with what we have? And I was thinking about how a friend of mine, he, um, he works with business leaders. And one of the things that they often find is many of these business leaders, they don't feel like they need anything because they have everything they possibly need. They're pretty self-sufficient. In fact, they're so self-sufficient that we're talking about them. Like he's trying to help become better leaders and innovators in their, their fields of industry. And so one of the things that happened, he started asking kind of different questions. Like most of us probably live paycheck to paycheck, or maybe we have a few months in the bank. But these people make more money than most of us can comprehend. In fact, he was talking to one of the guys, and, um, and he was like, well, I gave 10% to my church last year. It was over $100,000. Like, I tithe, doesn't that count for something? Which meant, by the way, if you're very good at math, it meant he made over $900,000 that he kept. So he made well over a million dollars, he gave over $100,000 to his local church, and he lived on the rest. At one level, like, yeah, like, cool. Save 10%, give 10%, live on the rest. Cool, cool, I get it, that's a great analogy. However, my friends started asking them different questions, because they live in a different tax bracket than many of us may be. He asked this question, Not how much should you make, make as much as you can, but his question was, how much should you keep? He's like, let's let's do the math. You you lived on $900,000. Did you need that much? Could you have lived on less? What if you had given more money to more causes, even to your local church? What if you had done that? What what might have happened? How much do you need? He said, you can live a great life financially, even like half that. Like, what what is your long-term goal? And he's begun to pose these questions to these guys who make so much money that they can take whatever vacation they want or do whatever they want, right, for the most part, because why would we ask this question? Because whether it's a lot of money or a little money, the temptation for all of us is to feel like we are self-sufficient. I don't need anything or anyone, and I can do whatever I want, and I'm good. Now, I want to be clear. Contentment is a great thing. Learning to be content, that doesn't matter how much money you have, how much or little. Contentment is a very great thing. But self-sufficiency is different than contentment. 
In fact, this is when I say I don't need anyone else or anything else. I have enough. I am good. I don't, I don't even always need God. That's a question, honestly, most of us wrestle with. We don't, even, we don't phrase it in that way. We, might, we don't really ask this question. Like, how much can I do what I want and still be a Christian? We don't really ask that question. But we do. We just don't use those words. Rather than asking this question, what does it look like for us to live like Jesus? Now, today, uh, if you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're not sure about this, uh, we're going to talk kind of what it looks like to kind of be all in. What does it look like to trust our entire life to him? And so if you haven't made that commitment, you can go, okay, well, part of this isn't for me, but what if you have? That becomes a question. Have we reoriented all of our life around Jesus? Have we reoriented our entire life around him? Or what drives our life? What is it that we, when this comes up, we reorient our life around that, but then this takes a back seat because we can only reorient our life around one thing, whatever that thing may be. Are we willing to trust our whole life to him? These are the questions the early church was asking in the book of Revelation, but honestly, they're also questions you and I are asking today as well. What are we trusting our life to? We'll continue to look at the book of Revelation. This is our last week looking at the seven letters to the seven churches, and we'll continue for the next several weeks looking at the book of Revelation as a whole, but, but we've been talking about how each letter is written to a particular church in a particular place in Asia, but also each of these letters is written to a particular people going through something, but there's one thing that becomes obvious throughout it all. So even though today we're looking at the church in Laodicea, what we begin to recognize, they're asking the question, what does it mean to live for God's kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of the world? What does it mean for God's value system to be the value system we live from regardless of the culture in which we live? And so often people kind of confuse the book of Revelation, make all kinds of weird things out of it, but here's what we want to say. It was good news to the first century church. It was good news to the churches that were receiving these letters, and it should be good news to us. In fact, it's good news that God is present with us in whatever we're going through, that whatever is going on in the world, God is going to redeem and restore and make all things new. And until the day he makes all things new, God is faithful. That's the point of the book of Revelation. So the call was for the churches to be faithful, whatever they were experiencing. And so we've been talking how each of these letters, if you like open your Bible to Revelations 2 and 3, you'd be reading about how, how each church is written to the angel of the church, or some will even say to the spirit of the church. So what is the angel or the spirit of the church? And so we've tried to make it very clear, right, that, that the angel or the spirit of the church is the collective whole of the people, Right? We would have an angel of our church. Connection Point has its own angel. I don't know what that looks like. We create it together. And often in the midst of it, it's harder to see the reality of what is unless we step outside and look in. And so Jesus, in these seven letters, is going, hey, here's what I see is the issue in your particular church. Of the seven letters, two got like glowing recommendation. Hey, you guys are killing it. Great job. You're amazing. Philadelphia was the, the poorest of the churches had probably the smallest attendance, right? It was the smallest church, least amount of money, longest letter, most praise. Go figure, right? And so today, we're looking at the church um, in Laodicea, and it's important for us to recognize these churches 
These letters were written to those who were inside the church, not those outside the church. Again, this was written to people who already had committed to following Jesus. At least that is what they had said. So the question for you and I is this, what kind of angel are we creating as a church? What is the spirit of our church? You and I together play a role in the spirit of this particular church. And so it was no different the church of Laodicea. In fact, just like us, the spirit of their church was shaped in part by the community in which they lived. And so here's what Laodicea is, so just some background, right? It was founded by Antiochus II in 250 BC. Uh, he named it after his wife, I mean, probably a smart man. It was a great commercial city. I love that I make subtle jokes that I think are funny that none of you laugh at often. I saw one chuckle over here. Thank you, Leah. Right? I appreciate it, right? One person caught my, I don't tell jokes. I'm a horrible joke teller. Um, my kids are way better. They tell jokes and they're laughing as they finish them. So I, that's, I'm not good. So I thought I was funny. Anyway, no one else does. I know how this works. In 133 BC, Laodicea became a part of the Roman Empire, and they were one of the places that administered justice for the empire. But here's the crazy thing about this city. Um, It was incredibly wealthy. It was the center of banking for all of Asia, at least in the Roman Empire. And so it was so wealthy that, in fact, um, that when the city was destroyed by an earthquake... It didn't need any money from Rome to repair it. It rebuilt itself. Right? It was so wealthy, we don't need help. We can take care of it. We got it. In fact, um, it was known for places they had these sheep and they produced black wool. And so uh, they were exporters of clothing worn all throughout the empire. In fact, the Laodiceans were the best-dressed people of the Roman province of Asia, period. Right? They looked good and they were wealthy. You can start putting places in your mind where this might be. Right, Wall Street, New York. I mean, this is a pretty ritzy place. Michigan Avenue in Chicago. Pick a place that's ritzy and wealthy. People look good, and they have lots of money, and that is the people of Laodicea. But also, in their community, they produced this stuff called Phrygian powder, which was supposed to be a paste you put on your eyes. supposed to help ailing eyes. So, like, heal your eyes. So it became famous for that in their medical school. But here's something that might be somewhat helpful for us as we get to the particular letter to this church. Hierapolis was a city not too far away because Laodicea didn't have its own water source. It's a problem for a city, right? Less in America today, problem. Laodicea didn't have its own water source. So Hierapolis had hot springs and they would use aqueducts to bring the hot water down. And so it would be hot when it left and what's going to happen is hot water over time, it's going to become lukewarm. Or Colossae, the other direction, had cool mineral springs, and that water also would come. But you can imagine, when cold water comes down an aqueduct in the sun, what's going to happen to that water as well? It also is going to become lukewarm. So the water of Laodicea was not good. All the money, sweet clothes, bad water. And that's important as we begin to look at this particular letter, because these people in this particular community, were wealthy and proud. Now, I'm going to say something that isn't in the particular letter. Pretty much every biblical commentator, that's kind of a current biblical commentator, if they were to try to articulate what, where would the church of Laodicea be today, it would be like the Western church or the American church. It's wealthy, 
He's proud. He doesn't need anything. Over and over again, almost every single commentator said the same thing. So when we read this particular letter, it'd probably be good for us to go, if you're going, I'm not rich. Well, let's pretend for just a moment, in terms of the global world, by the way, our poorest people in America are rich globally. Let's pretend for just a moment that this letter is written to you and I and our church. And then begin to see if we can have eyes to see and ears to hear what the scripture might be saying to us. Here's what it says, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church and Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to start putting up the sign. Please silence your cell phone as you enter. Um, words of the amen and true. Right? What does it look like for us, this idea that God is faithful in who he is? He was and he is and he will be. This idea that God is faithful in who he is in the beginning and will continue to be that way. And it's a reminder for us that we're called to be faithful and true, that fidelity matters in the kingdom of God. He is faithful and we are called to be faithful people of fidelity in all aspects of our life. One of the ways we see that lived out, hopefully, is in the context of marriage, right? This faithfulness, we want to be faithful people, faithful to our churches, faithful. There should be something that describes the people of God in that way. And then he talks about this idea, the lukewarmness of, I'm going to just quote this, by the way. Uh, the lukewarmness of Laodicea was caused by the spirit of self-sufficiency that says, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And so I was trying to think, well, what does it mean, like, um, like, I, I don't need anything. I have enough. I have more than enough. And so, in fact, I was trying to think about how I might describe this. And I know I pick on him often, but honestly, it's like the, it makes so much sense. And there's a connection that we'll see in this particular book. But Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 11, it becomes the epitome of like, I need nothing. I'm self-sufficient. I have all that I need, right? Here's what, what 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 14 says. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the land. 
Jumping ahead to chapter 11, here's what we see. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. It's not surprising. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Right. Solomon um, is the epitome of like mo money, mo problems. Some of you know who the notorious B.I.G. is, and you're like, oh, I got that analogy. Others you are like, what did he just say? But just because you have more doesn't mean it's enough, right? It, it's just never enough. Solomon, if you go back and read right before I started, it talks about the queen of Sheba came to visit him and saw all the splendor of Solomon's kingdom. Like, whoa, look at all you have. And, and I got to say this, right? The, the line that says, every year his money weighed out to be 666 talents of gold. Now, either he managed to limit his income annually, which seems pretty unlikely in the context of the whole text, or the writer of 1 Kings is trying to make a particular point, that in Hebrew culture, numbers mattered. In fact, 666 was the number, not of the mark of the beast, but it was the number of incomplete. Like 777 would be like the Holy Trinity. Like that would be as good as it could be, as complete as possible. But 666 was never enough. So every year, Solomon got more and more and more and more, and it was never enough. We're going to talk a few weeks, right? I'm just going to preview. But number 666 is also in the book of Revelation. It says it's the mark of the beast. And you're like, oh, yeah, put it on your forehead. No. Not, um, right, if it was helpful, if, again, we go back to numerology, the number of Caesar Nero was 666. What was the mark of Nero? His face was on a coin. Money. The mark of the beast, you can't buy or sell without it? You're right, you can't. You try to buy or sell without money? It doesn't work very well. In other words, it's never enough. What marks us, what is shaped by us, often can become money. We become, it becomes not enough for us. But this particular church felt like they had more than enough in Laodicea. In fact, I go this way, I'm going to read it this way. Perhaps it's best to understand the lukewarmness of the Laodicean church. Not as some form of unexpressive spirituality, but is a spirit of self-sufficiency that in reality is distant and cut off from its primary source of life. That is Christ. In other words, I need Jesus when it's convenient for me, but I, I don't really need him when it's not convenient for me. I don't really want to reorient my life around what he calls me to. I want to just do what I want to do and then have God bless what I want to do. Because that's who God is, right? And that's who Jesus is writing to in this particular letter. See, Laodicea was the city which 
could cure defects of physical sight, but in spiritual sight, it was blind. Jesus nowhere promises us all throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all throughout the letters of Paul, nowhere does he promise us that it's easy to follow him. In fact, he would probably say it's the opposite. He'd say, take up your cross daily, die to yourself. 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred. At best, John was stranded on an island, died an old man, right? Not exactly like, hey, sign up and die. And yet that's the life Jesus invites us into. But what he promises us in that is you will find life and life to its full, life that leads to life. The problem for most of us is we are not willing to reorient our life around him. It's why we can't help but connect, right? He writes this letter to particular churches. Like we've, many of us have heard the story, right? This idea that um, he's trying to wake up his church. These are people who already claim to follow him, not people on the outside. So today, if you're like wrestling and you're not sure where you are, please continue to lean in and wrestle and determine whether you want to follow Jesus or not. But if you said, yeah, I'm in, then what's it look like for us to be all in? Right, verse 16 is one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. It says, you're neither hot nor cold, so I'm going to vomit you out. I wish that you were hot or cold. In other words, you're nothing. You know who I am. You say you believe in me, but you live your life in such a way that I don't matter to you. You are self-sufficient. You don't need God. So here's what I would say to you. If you know who God is, right? Remember, caveat, if you're not sure, keep exploring, keep wrestling. But if you have said, I'm in, are you? Am I? Are we all in? Or are we like, mm, I'm neither hot nor cold. I'm lukewarm. And what does lukewarm water, right? Remember the city, Hierapolis, Calisay, water from the two cities coming together. Do you know what that water would sometimes make people in Laodicea do? It would make them vomit, So he's painting a picture with things they actually understood from their local community saying, hey, by the way, here's what I think about you. I wish you were hot, all in. I wish you lived with passion that you were excited about who I am, or I wish you were out. Because then at least we would know where you are. But this in-between stuff, it's lukewarm. And you know what makes me want to do? It makes me want to hurl. He's inviting us to be all in or out. There's not really room for fence sitting if we've made any kind of decision. And so he contrasts like the wealth of the city of Laodicea and the people. He contrasts it with like some spiritual like poverty, right? The lens of man versus the lens of God. What's to see from his perspective versus, right? The church in Laodicea would think they were killing it. And money, they were successful. So a city of fabrics and clothing and wool versus the idea that he says you're naked. They have healing eye powder, and he says you're blind. City of banking, all kinds of gold, and he says you're poor. Right? He's saying, hey, listen, you can think you have everything right, but if you have don't really, if you've not gone all in on me, then you haven't really gone all in. Their self-sufficiency to the spirit, point of spiritual lukewarmness was messing them up. It's hard for us because this is a culture in which we would say, well, let's, you know, just figure it out. Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Like we're, we believe in self-sufficiency, but the problem when it comes to our faith is self-sufficiency doesn't get us far enough. In fact, it never gets us there. We're good. We didn't need Rome to rebuild a city. We don't need God to rebuild our spiritual life. 
And then verse 20 is this famous scene in Scripture, right? It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, right? right so there's a picture we're going to show you. Um, I think, yeah. So um, this picture by William Hunt is a picture of Jesus standing outside the door knocking. And right, we often are like, well, you know, he's knocking on the heart, your heart, and he wants to invite you to invite him in. That's not what this picture is, by the way. He's knocking on the door of the church, saying, I'm not welcome. I'm not welcome in your church. Are you going to let me in or not? Now, I want to be clear. We can, we can also take from this text, like, God wants us to follow him with his life, and he's wanting to be invited into our life and us to reorient our life around him. But the picture is of his church. He's on the outside, wondering if he can get in. So what's the good news for the church in Laodicea, right? The good news is this. Um, there's still time for the people of the church in Laodicea. He wants to enter into fellowship with them. In spite of the lukewarm faith they have, Jesus wants to reorient that faith to something greater. Even though they may be spiritually blind, he wants to give them sight. The bad news is this. Um, they think they have all they need, but they don't. Right, I, I love what um, William Barclay said this way. Laodicea is condemned because she preferred a respectable morality to a passionate religion. I, I met with a pastor not long ago, and I, he was talking about his church, and, and he said, um, when I went there, they literally said, we're the country club church. In other words, I pay my dues, call those ties, I show up, I socialize, and I leave. But nowhere are we invited into that as a way of life, as a people of God. In fact, um, this is the challenge for you and I. To live as if we don't really need God until the moments of our life are call us to despair. To act like we have it all together. And so he calls them, he says, well, here's, here's how we go forward in this, right? Receive the correction, repent. Live with passion, this particular church has no mention of hardships. They don't have any significant problems, which honestly is probably like most of us when it comes to our faith. I wrote a couple questions, right? The Laodiceans put their trust in the things of the world. How often is that true for us? How often does our faith lack passion that should describe our lives? How do we measure success individually and corporately? Do we recognize, do we, do we buy into prosperity at some level that if I pray and I do the right thing, then I'll get the right result always, but that we find is not true in the scriptures? Are we clear in our ability to recognize that spiritual prosperity may not result in material prosperity? Will we be willing to listen to the voice of Jesus who calls to you and I? Or have we reoriented our lives around something else? So these seven letters, what's the point of the seven letters? The point is this. The point of the seven letters is the transformation of the church into a community that rightly bears the name, the body of Christ. 
And so each of these letters, right, they're called to name the spirit of the community. Like, what, what's the problem? What's going on? Who are they? And then to say this, not only do we call that know the spirit, when we name the spirit, call it to repentance, right? We live transformed. And that requires depth and honesty to recognize where we are. And then we're called to embody a new spirit, his very spirit. So I was thinking, what, what would happen if we were to write? What if, what if Jesus wrote a letter to us? What would that letter say? I thought about writing one and just decided not to because I didn't want to speak for him in that. I didn't know what the right word would be. Probably too close to it at some level. But I was thinking about this. Many of us today will go home and watch football, right? Many of you will go home and watch football. Um, Some of you are shaking your head no. Good for you, I guess. I may not watch much, but I'll watch some. Right? I don't even know if the Lions play today. Um, they do, right? Some, some people will have a bad day because they're going to watch the Lions lose again. Um, I root for Notre Dame. They lost last night. I get it, right? That was awful. Um, stayed up to watch that. No. But I was thinking, right, if I were to name a few football players, if you're a football fan, you'll know these people, right? Jamarcus Russell, Jeff George, Ryan Leaf, Johnny Manziel. Some of you are going, like, I know all these people. And they were all busts. There's a reason I picked that list of those names. These were all NFL quarterbacks. They were incredibly talented. They had incredible skill. But the truth is, they allowed other things to derail their careers, either their, their lack of preparation, their lack of work ethic, right? They were lazy for some of them. Uh, their off-field issues became detriment to their, their, their career. Right? I didn't leave off bus who, like, worked hard. Like, I, that's a separate category. These are people who, like, had potential and lost it. They weren't all in. They were lukewarm athletes. And now they're on a list of biggest busts in NFL history. It's great, because you can Google them, and all of them make the list. And it's a long list. And they're all towards the top. Incredibly talented. Busts. They're lukewarm athletes. Are you or I lukewarm Christians? It's an oxymoron, by the way. Are we lukewarm in our faith? Have we decided to go all in? Right, we're not shocked when athletes aren't successful, when they didn't work hard and they allowed off-field stuff. That's like the least shocking thing to us. But we sometimes are shocked in our faith. We've never gone all in. We've never surrendered our whole self. We've never reoriented our entire life around the pursuit of following Jesus. And we're shocked. When I would say to us, we're the church of Laodicea. You're neither hot nor cold, and often God wants to just vomit us out. So right now, today in this moment, right, like I, right, here's the thing, people who speak a lot, you can try to emotionally manipulate, that's not my goal. My goal is for you to make a cognitive decision that you're going to give your whole mind, soul, strength, body, entire self to following Jesus. This is what it means to be all in, to reorient our entire life around him. Anything less than that, and he says to you and I, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. And here's what lukewarm faith does to me. It makes me want to puke. What might happen if today you and I said, all right, I'm going to go all in. I want to be all in on my faith. I want to follow Jesus with every aspect of my life. I want to be all in on that. I want to reorient who I am, what I do, how I spend my money, how I live, everything around the idea that I want to pursue him and knowing him. To be all in means to surrender your life. 
So how do we do that? How do we begin to embrace the practices of the followers of Jesus? Well, first, we spend time with Jesus. We just spend time with Jesus. So we go, well, people say, well, they tell you to read the Bible. I, I, have you looked at a Bible? Like, this is a really big book. Okay, here's what I'm going to say to you. Don't just read the Bible. That's a bad plan. Bear with me. Start in the book of James. Read the book of James. And then read the Gospel of John. And then read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then reread Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John until you've come to know who Jesus is. And then start to read the rest of the Bible. But until you know who Jesus is, don't even waste your time with the rest because it's not going to be enough to convince you to follow him. But do you know who Jesus is? And if you're going to commit to living right, we say, we use the word Christian sometimes. Christian means disciple or apprentice of. It means to be a follower of someone. To devote, right, um, disciples in the early church, in the early, in the Jewish world. Even today, if you right, like went to New York and you watched, watched people follow a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher. If you watch people follow them, they will follow so closely. They follow right behind and everything that rabbi would do, that follower would do. In fact, they will go to the bathroom with them because they might miss something that's taught. In fact, what will happen over time is you'll become so much like your rabbi, your teacher, that when you speak, people go, huh, is that you or is that your teacher? And you're like, I don't know. At some point, they rubbed off so much so that I became like them. And so for you and I, have we so spent time with Jesus? Have we so spent time with his scriptures, right? Especially his words that when people hear us speak, they go, huh, you sound like Jesus. This is what it means for us to be all in. And so let's look at it to practice these things. We'll write a list of people that need prayer. Right? Not just write the list, but then pray for them. Not pray that they'll see the world the way you see the world, but pray that they'll begin to experience the goodness of God in their life. That maybe God will lay on your heart people that you can help in some way, shape, or form. Maybe you can begin to pray for the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. If those things don't define your lives, then begin to pray for them. Because they're the marks of the followers of Jesus. In fact, I can say all day long I want to live passionately for Jesus, but on my own, in my own strength, I am not able to live passionately for him. I cannot do it. But I can pray that God's spirit might work in me in such a way that I can live with passion for him. I can surround myself with people who live passionately for him so that I can become a person who's passionate about following Jesus and then share that with other people by how I live and how I speak and how I act. Recently, we purchased some t-shirts here that we give out when people get baptized, and they just say two words. That's it. All in. All in. Here's the question. Are you all in for Jesus? Are you all in for Jesus? Is that what you're going to reorient your life around? If so, take your next step spiritually, whatever that step needs to be. Trust God's spirit to be at work in your life. Surround yourself with people 
who are calling you to be something greater than you've ever known. Because that picture of Jesus knocking at the door, he's not just knocking at the door of the church, although that's true. He's knocking at the door of your life and saying this, right? There's areas of your life you're not letting me in. There's areas of your life that you have not surrendered to me. There's areas of your life you're saying, God, you can have all of me, but this, I'm keeping this, this is mine. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need you in this part of my life because you're going to mess it up. And he's going, yeah, absolutely, I'm going to mess it up. But in the best way possible. But here's the good news of Jesus. God is gracious and loving and kind. And in the midst of the pain and the suffering of reorientation of our life, because it does hurt, his presence is with us. This morning, um, I'm going to invite you to stand with me at this time. And I don't know which direction your life is going, and the praise team is going to come. And as they come, I just want to ask a couple questions. What direction is your life going? If we were to ask your life what your life is centered around or reoriented around, or, or if you were to think about this idea like, am I all in for him or not? That is a singular question, but it's not just the question I'm asking, right? Because sometimes you go, oh, that pastor, he just said all kinds of weird stuff today. Aaron, would you just shut up? Here's what I am firmly, firmly committed to and firmly believe. It is not me asking this question today. It is Jesus himself asking you and I this question. Are you all in? Are you all in? And here's why he's asking, because he's already written the words, the church in Laodicea, and he says, listen, if you're not all in, then you're neither hot nor cold, and I want to vomit you out, so just be out or be in, but don't be in between. Like I said, caveat earlier, if you're exploring faith and still haven't decided, totally get it. But if you've been in church for a long time in your life and you're still kind of not really sure what you're going to do, it's time to either get in or get out. And Jesus is inviting you, going, will you, will you come all in with me? Will you trust me with your whole self? Because if you will, you will find life and you will find it to its full. You will find the life that leads to life, that leads to eternity with me, to a goodness you will know that makes sense when things don't make sense. You'll come to know my presence in the midst of whatever it is you are going through. But the question remains today, are you all It's the point of the letter to the church in Laodicea. It's the point of the words of Jesus for us today. Will you and I go all in? As we we pray today, I want to just, if we can go ahead and play Mac, and then um, today, if you're wrestling with whether you're sure whether you're in or out, I would invite you, if you sense maybe God speaking to you in some way, you're like, man, I... I want to go all in, then here's what I say. Um, we don't often do this, but if you'll just kind of bow your heads, we'll ask you to do it. I mean, if you're online, you don't have to, but in the room, if you just bow your head. And if you sense God speaking, right, this is literally between well, me and you and him. But if you sense him leaning into your life, would you just raise your hand and say, I need to go all in, God, I want to go all in. And I'd ask that as we pray in this moment um, that you would come up front if you raise your hand and I'm just going to meet with you down here. We're going to pray together and I'm going to ask what God's saying to you as we sing.
And so if you raise your hand, would you just come forward in these moments and we're going to pray together? So Father, we ask today that you would come near to us. That you would open our eyes and our ears to the way you are at work in the world, that you might help us to be the kind of people who have so committed our lives to you that we would go all in with you. Father, help us today to surrender whatever it needs to be surrendered. To trust you with our whole self. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.